Hi, everyone. My name is Miles Surratt, and I serve as the Assistant Director for Leadership and the Center for Student Engagement at George Washington University. I'm also happy to be your host for the NASA Leadership Podcast presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. My guest today is NASA President Dr. Kevin Kruger. Kevin joined NASA as, as a Associate Executive Director in 1994 and became its first Executive Level President on March 15, 2012. In his capacity as a National Advocate for Students and the Primary Spokesperson for Student Emeritus, student affairs administrators and practitioners, he draws on more than 30 years of experience in higher education. Prior to NASA, Kevin worked for 15 years at the University of Maryland College Park and at the University of Maryland Baltimore County. During his tenure at the University of Maryland, he worked in orientation, student activities, leadership development, admissions, and with the Vice President for Student Affairs Office. Dr. Kruger has also served as, adjunct, as an adjunct faculty member in the Student Development and Higher Education Program at Trinity College in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks, Miles. Good to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. So we're going to get started and uh, with a regular segment that we have called Rapid Fire. So this is an opportunity for everyone to get to know Kevin a little bit better, and this will be personal, uh, sort of personal information. We'll do professional and get to know you, Kevin, in just a minute. So I'm going to ask a, a big silly question and limit Kevin to a 30-second response. Does that sound okay? Mm-hmm. Okay. Good. Let's Great. go. All right, Kevin. So I understand you enjoy tennis, and I feel like Maybe this era has slightly passed, but I feel like in the last 10 years of tennis, an essential uh, allegiance is that you have to sort of make a stand on Federer and Nadal or Djokovic. So who's your guy? Uh, i got to go Federer. I uh, uh, love his killer backhand. Uh, I love his attitude, uh, uh, enthusiasm. Yeah, definitely a Federer fan. I feel like all real tennis purists are, uh, appreciate Federer in a different way than I, I really love sports. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm not necessarily a tennis person, and so I always really enjoyed Nadal and sort of the the grinder nature. But I feel like all tennis purists, Federer is like, you know, the highest yeah. form. Of yeah, I think you know, I think it's his, ag his aggressiveness. I think is part of what's appealing about him. And uh, his, uh, you're right, Nadal is a grinder. Djokovic is too, to some extent. But Federer, he has. I mean, some of the angles he hits, it's it's uh, it's, a, it's a joy to watch. All right, so uh, is Serena Williams the greatest tennis player of all time? Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, you can argue that. I see certainly one of the most in, in, dominating tennis players we've seen in our generation. Um, and uh, she is another one. I mean, she, is, she wails on the ball. Um, and so uh, in terms of consistency, I'd have to say you could make a case for her being uh, certainly in the top two or three, yeah. Yeah, I feel like the odd thing about watching Serena play tennis is that I've n never really watched, maybe since Kim Kleister's, I guess, never really mm -hmm. watched someone beat Serena. It feels mm -hmm. like when Serena loses, it's just always Serena. She beats herself, absolutely. That's her biggest, yeah, uh, yeah she gets gets her, gets her gets in her head, and she, I don't know what happens, and then when she gets turned off, it's, it's, uh, it just it unravels. But you're right, when she's on her game, unbeatable in her, uh, in her sport. I totally agree. It's a joy, it's I another guess, pleasure to watch. I guess that's kind of how Federer was prior to he was. Nadal. Yeah, yeah, uh, I think so too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're, I agree. I agree. But you know, I play. You know, playing tennis. It's it. Uh, and you know, golf, same sport, same same issue. Uh, the concentration required, concentrating over a minute over time, every single shot is uh, is is really the one of the measures of the great ones. They're able to do that. So, well, now to transition a little bit away from the NASA Tennis Podcast, um, I, understand that, <laughs> I understand that you also enjoy golf, um, I and I love sports. 
falling sports are probably my main interest outside of work and family. But in the post-Tiger Woods era, which I think sadly we are in, I can't generate any interest in following golf. So mm-hmm. make an argument. Mm-hmm. Why should – what yeah. is interesting about following golf right now? Well, you're not the only one. I mean, viewership is so far down since the Tiger uh, days. Um, you know, for me, you know, being a player, I, I like it because, I mean, uh, you know, what's happened even since Tiger kind of stepped down is the athleticism of the top four or five has, you know, and even top ten is just really ramped up. I mean, he changed the game in terms of how you prepare for the game and the kind of athletes that are playing these days. So I love watching. I mean, I just love the shot making. I mean, I, you know, the uh, and, and actually there's quite a bit of high-level competition between the top four or five guys now, and it's, uh, it's actually pretty exciting. So I, I, I still love it. Um, you know, and it is nothing like watching uh, high-definition TV golf on a Sunday, uh, a Sunday afternoon. It's fantastic. And that drama at the British Open this year between uh, Stenson and Mickelson, I mean, that, that was as good as any of the Tiger-era uh, uh, tournaments. That was, that was fantastic golf. So do you have in sort of that, that young cohort, do you have a, like a Spieth or a McElroy or a Jason Day? I like. I really like Jason Day. I like I like his attitude. I like his game. Um, for, you know, unbelievably consistent. Uh, fun, fun, to, fun guy to watch. But all these top guys, all these top guys are fun to watch. Um, you know, they're a little. You know, the thing that you know, Tiger, that you don't see is a lot of emotion. I and mean, that was something that Tiger brought to the game. I think that, um, and the kind of fan enthusiasm. You don't have. You know, none of them have a following. So I think that does. You know, not just as they're no big personality. They're 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 a little mechanical, um, and I think that that's you know Phil's really the last real personality that we have out there that people, you know, that have that people can kind of rally around. So that that is a that is a little bit of a drop off. Hmm. Okay, so another Kevin Kruger tidbit I've been able to glean is you have a passion for grilling. So can you I, can you share some <laughs> some under the radar tips for successful grilling? Well, I'll tell you, I'm going to get the, uh, this is going to be over the radar. I, I, last October, I, after, after five years of looking at them, I finally bought a big green egg. Um, and uh, so this is a, a grill that is, looks, looks like an egg. Uh, it's green. It's a soft ceramic. It's based off of a Japanese grill. And the, and the, the key here is that you can get this thing up to about 1,000 degrees. Um, so, but if you've got a gas grill, I mean, I'd say the same thing. And same thing for cooking on a stove, actually. The biggest mistake people make about cooking is not starting well with the, either the pan or the grill hot enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, that's one thing that you can go do with this big green egg. I mean, you can get a really nice char on a, on a steak or a piece of chicken or that kind of thing. So, um, uh, so that, you know, for me, that's, uh, that's one of the joys. And, 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 and branch out and discover the, the pleasure of cooking vegetables and other kinds of things on the grill. And people obviously, you know, you can you know, do a lot of things but, uh, with meat, but, uh, uh, you know, take, some, take an eggplant, uh, quarter it, sprinkle some kosher salt on it, let the, let the moisture drain off of it. Toss in a little olive oil and then grill it. Fantastic. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, my mother-in-law, who's who's the the best cook I know, says that she's not actually really a good cook. She just is is religious about her meat thermometer. Uh, mm-hmm, so. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it is, you know, getting it getting meat done right. You get to, you you have four people over dinner and one person likes it rare, one medium rare, one medium well. Um, it's uh, there's a there's a technique to it. I mean, there's, a, there's an art to kind of getting everybody's steak hot on the table at the same time and at the temperature they want it. So that's, I would agree. That's a, that's a good skill to have. Mm-hmm. All right, for our last rapid fire question, Kevin, I know you've got a child starting as a freshman in college this fall. So I what do, new I feelings, do. What new feelings have popped up during this process that might be helpful for? student affairs practitioners to understand, a.k.a. can you speak parent for us a little bit? Uh, <laughs> 
Well, you know, this will come as no surprise. I think you discover, like you know, we've known for you know for for all the years I've worked in, in student affairs, this is it's a very personal thing when you send your kid to college, um, and so. Um, you know the you know the normal anxieties you have. I mean, you really you're you're really you know as a parent you're really fighting, um, launching them on the one hand, on the other hand, kind of you know making sure they don't stumble in this early this early stage, you know giving them the sense of responsibility, but kind of wanting to be that safety net. Just that trying to you know that lane is not so easy sometimes. But um, you know, and and uh, I'm, I'm fortunate my son seems pretty mature, so uh, really taking that back step. Um, and then really more personally. Uh, uh, you know, it was very amusing going to uh, parent orientation and sitting there as the president of NASPA in the parent orientation session and uh, <laughs> trying not to answer, trying not to ask questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would imagine so. Well, okay. and my, one of my best friends is the vice president of affairs at, at uh, Maryland, and that was where my son's going. And she, and she uh, jokingly said to some people in front of me, said, "Can I tell you what a nightmare it is having the president of NASPA in my parent orientation session?" <laughs> It's not like I need that kind of pressure, <laughs> so it's kind of a fun process. Yeah, a good a good friend of mine is the assistant director for orientation at the University of Maryland, and uh, oh, okay, and great. Yeah, I spoke with her recently, and she mentioned that she she would have loved if someone had let let her know in advance that you were going to be there. So, yeah, uh, exactly. I tried to go under the radar. Yeah, I would imagine so. Okay, so the next segment is called Higher Ed: Two Truths and a Lie. So I'm going to provide two true stories from higher ed current events and one lie, and Kevin's going to have to try to parse out that lie. So the theme this week is personal expression. And mm -hmm. as a note before we get started, I know, Kevin, that you are a voracious consumer of higher education news, so I don't have a lot of confidence in my ability to trick you here. But this, oh, here, Okay, all right. We'll see. Okay. Here's my best shot. I hope that these are – I try to find uh, as obscure things as I can, so I hope these are not the things that you're you know, doing deep reading on, but we'll have to see. So here are your three options. Uh, Fifth University recently sold two paintings, uh, or sorry, not recently. Fifth University sold two paintings in a Georgia O'Keeffe donated collection in 2010 without the proper legal consent. So that's your first option. Your second option is recent University of Wyoming signee Stephanie Grandin has drawn interest throughout her illustrious high school athletic career for swimming without a cap and with a shock of purple hair. So obviously a little unique in the uh, swimming space. And then uh, Tim Chartier, a professor at Davidson College, recently gained national recognition for his pedagogical technique of teaching math through miming. So those are your three options. Two of those are true. Okay, sorry. Them is false. All right, so for I want to tell you, I did not, um, I did not Google any of this ahead of time. Um, I also, you stu you, I'm stumped on all three. They all, I'm not aware of any of the three of these, but I'm going to go because I just really don't like mimes. I'm going to go with Tim Chartier as the Davidson College professor who's teaching using math using miming as the false story. So I really like your approach to this. Most people try to reason it out, and they're like, well, there's too many details in that or not enough. I really like your approach of just leaning into an anti-mind bias. I think that that's great. Uh, <laughs> so uh, that one is actually true. I don't know too much about it. Um, but I had a feeling was it was true. Was just, I had a feeling it was true, but I had to, I had to go with the anti-mind thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's an article in the Chronicle about it. I, I didn't read too much about it, one, because I yeah. was doing this pretty quickly, and two, because I, I don't think I could learn math even through my so, uh, right. right. So that one is true. 
the Fisk University one is also true. George O'Keefe donated a large collection at some point, uh-huh. and uh, in 2010 there was they uh-huh. agreed to uh, a loan that would provide an influx of cash to the university, but at the same time, apparently, it, it just came out. They sold two of the paintings that wow. uh, without proper legal consent. The one that is false is the one that I uh, is the one about the University of Wyoming swimmer. Um, Stephanie Grandin is a is going to be a swimmer at the University of Wyoming, but the best I can tell, she swims with a cap and definitely does good. Have hair. Good writing there, Miles. Good writing. That's a good one. <laughs> Thank you. I I do what I can. Yeah, um, good. So for our next segment, this is designed to help listeners get to understand you as a as a professional mm-hmm. a little bit better. So this is called getting to know Captain. So um, mm-hmm. I know that you worked in leadership programs. So what did you learn from your from your time in leadership programs? You know, I think uh, the biggest thing that I, as I, my takeaway, I mean, I've, you know, there's obviously the kind of fundamental leadership theory stuff that you, you know, that was a part of it. But for me, I think the biggest one was um, uh, an appreciation uh, and kind of an endorsement that leadership takes place in lots of different um, uh avenues throughout the campus for undergraduate students in particular. So we tend to, you know, sometimes concentrate in the, the classic student organization uh, model, mm-hmm. but uh, to, to, for, to uh, reinforce, for example, that uh, uh, peer educators in the health center um, or um, folks uh, who are student employees in the union or uh, obviously student athletes um, or, you know, sort of looking at that, looking at that leadership um, uh, cohort uh, in, a, in a really broad way. And, and so in doing so, you know, uh, when I was uh, working in leadership programs, one of the things that I try to do is, is also then get um, professional staff uh, to see themselves as leadership educators in ways that they maybe wouldn't have otherwise. Um, so, uh, so we, uh, you know, when I was, uh, for example, my, one of my campuses, we, we um, created a cohort of folks who uh, worked with undergraduates in a variety of different departments, both in and out of student affairs. Um, and then we did sort of leadership training um, for those professional staff so that, um, you know, in the classic kind of train the trainer kind of thing, they could do the same work with their undergraduates in their particular um, office or organization. So just, you know, really, really making uh, leadership as a, a little bit more of a, a hallmark experience for, for more students um, and to think of that broadly. Uh, you know, I think about work right now, like uh, University of South Carolina, I think takes, you know, does a leadership Training program for all of their student employees, you know, uh, from work study all the way, you know, down to uh, folks working in the front desk at the at, in the residence hall. Um, and so that kind of broader definition of leadership, I think, is really uh, uh, one of my takeaways. Okay, great. So, what do you think that people should be reading right now to best understand the field of student affairs? Um, so uh, that's a great question. I, I think um, uh, there's so much to read. So I mean, I think you know, where do you where do you focus? So, you know, um, it, it minimally, I think, um, so that you're conversant in the news of the the common news of the day, and obviously, either the Chronicle or Inside Higher Ed, I think, is important to just be familiar with. That's probably the easiest job you have. Can you can you do it mobily, and you can do it in between meetings, and um, kind of just catch up. I mean, that's something that you know, there's something that happens every day that would be have some relevance. Um, then you should. Um, be aware of, um, uh, and then and then I think um, you know I'm really uh, I'm really interested in some of the work that uh, uh, right now that's coming out of the uh, George at York Institution actually um, the Center for Workforce Development Anthony Carnevale's group um, 
uh, really looking at um, uh, issues around uh, salary, um, uh, career outcomes, um, the, the decisions and the, uh, the completion rates for uh, different uh, uh, groups of students. Um, one of the, I think one of the more powerful reports that I've read in the last year or so is uh, separate but unequal. It's a, a, a look at where um, today's undergraduate students are going to college. And I think one of the uh, really indictments for us as, a, as an industry is that about 80%, um, they, they studied between, uh, I think it was between uh, 2000 and 2009, I think, is the, is the study, study period uh, when they looked at this. And about 80% of white students um, go to, the, to one of the 468 most selective institutions. Um, but then when you look at uh, uh, Latino, Hispanic students, about, I, think it's, I want to say 75% of Hispanic Latino students and maybe 70, I'm going to get the percentages wrong, but they're in that range, of black African-American students go to um, open admission two or four, open admission or non-selective two or four-year institutions. So we have this sort of bifurcation of our, in our educational system. And that's, uh, that's going to have long-term consequences for our society. I mean, I think that, you know, we, you know when we have uh, essentially a system where if you're white and have in, uh, privilege, you get access to a, uh, a certain type of institution. And if you are of color and, and perhaps low income, first generation, you get sorted into a different set of institutions. Um, that kind of exposure that uh, that George that the Georgetown Center provides, that reports like that, I think is really um, really valuable. They've also done a lot about the wage premium, which I think is you know important to counteract the narrative that we have sometimes that the college degree is not worth it or that the debt is too high. Um, and and really looking at you know one of the things I read just a couple of days ago that I think it's Nicole Smith over there said, you know one of the you know if you have a choice, one of the worst worst decisions you can make is, is to is to is to not go to college if you have the choice to go and if you have the opportunity to go um, um, financially. Uh, and that's not to uh, downgrade any of the trades. You know there's a lot of work, a lot of. Uh, uh, information out there about the fact that we need more plumbers and we need more trades and, and, and you know, we need more Java code script folks and certificates and that kind of thing. And, and all that's important as well. Um, so, but some kind of high quality certificate or college degree is really critical. Um, you know, as a, one more point on this, you know, the unemployment rates in the United States right now is about 4.7%. But if you just have a high school degree, it's like 17%. So um, this is, you know, kind of under, that kind of work I think underscores the importance of, uh, that we play uh, in uh, an educated workforce for our country. So that, that's, a, that's a real good resource for me. And, you know, let Great. me tell I mean, it's, a, it's such a big question. I'm just going to say one more thing, and that is read the people that don't think things are going well in higher ed. Uh, Kevin Carey is a great one. He does a lot of editorials in, in the Chronicle. He's got a book out. Um, Jeff Salingo's books, I think, are probably pretty, pretty harsh on higher ed as well. And I think it's important to sort of see what people are saying who don't necessarily think that the higher ed is going to stay the way it is right now so that we kind of understand the transformational forces that are pressing against us. Um, so. Okay. Um, so you mentioned the University of South Carolina earlier in their uh, student employee leadership training program. What other colleges do you think are doing leadership work really well? Uh, I'm a big fan of what Florida State does. Uh, Laura Osteen's work down there and in sort of the integration of leadership and civic engagement, I think, is uh, a really good model. I've seen other institutions doing that as well. Um, uh, just, I think, 
the notion of leadership for what and so leadership for a purpose, I think, is something that is, has value. And I think um, linking and syncing up those two functions um, just conceptually makes a lot of sense to me. So I think that's a, that's a good one. Um, uh, I'll, I, I have to call out my alma mater at the University of Maryland because they have you know, such a long tradition from Denny Roberts to Susan Comavis, uh to the, the center um, and some of the work that they've done there in terms of really a comprehensive leadership program that is both uh, has components for Greek life and has components for general students and has um, you know, uh, sort of a, a, a really good um, tracking of opportunities for advanced leadership um, experiences. Um, uh, Nance Lucas came through there. Uh, uh, lots of good people who I think have um, been uh, really instrumental in the leadership field. So, um, um, but I think uh, you know, the, the, I think the campuses that I think we're seeing this movement towards civic engagement and, and leadership is a good one. And also, and I mean, I mentioned South Carolina uh, because I think you know the places that are doing a, a broad-based uh, uh, approach to leadership and looking at leadership and not just the classic positions, positional kind of experiences, I think are doing really good work. All right. Uh, every uh, every airport bookstore has plenty of them. So, what is the best book about leadership? Hmm. Um, well, I'm going to pick one that's a little bit more personal for me, or like more maybe more professional, um, and that is uh, Good to Great. Um, um, uh, Good to Great really kind of talks about how you lead an organization from. Um, to excellence, and I I, uh, I, I I use it more than I use it personally, probably more than any other um, framework for leadership. And it's not one that we probably initially think about for undergraduate students in a leadership program, um, but I think it's one that's really useful as we think about um, how you lead um, organizations, complex organizations. Um, so for me, that's a that's that's my personal one. But but I think. Um, you know, as a teaching tool and one that I've probably, uh, you know, the, the, a classic would be the Leadership Challenge, Kuzin Posner's work, I think, still holds up and um, is, uh, you know, not on, the, not on the top ten list of, on the airport, but I think is a really <laughs> solid read and one that could, could and often is a good foundation for the work we do with students, very accessible, and I think that works pretty well. I think the, the other observation I'd make is I think that uh, as we um, are, as we think more inclusively about our campuses, I think that one of the challenges is um, is finding good resources uh, that are um, uh, written by and are uh, based on um, a broader uh, uh, sector of our population. I think that that's a weakness of our leadership um, uh, literature uh, that tends to be you know, coming out of Harvard MBA programs, and I think as we think about the, uh, equity, inclusion, social justice issues, and the impact of uh, race, ethnicity, gender identity on on, uh, on leadership, I think we are uh, we have some work to do as an industry to provide broader perspectives in that space. Okay. So for our final segment, I'm going to ask Kevin six big leadership questions. So the mm. first question is what is the unique value of leadership programming and student affairs? I think I, so for me it's, um, it's about um, outcomes. Uh, if you look at what employers uh, value uh, and, and all the research about employers, um, uh, they're increasingly less interested in the, in the major and the institution you attended and more interested in sort of the core cross-cutting skills that um, uh, that, they are, that they need for employers to be successful in their organizations. And so I think a well-developed leadership program really prepares students um, for the kind of 
uh, complex organizations, change-oriented, change innovative-oriented organizations that they're going to be entering. So this, uh, I think, you know, it's, it, it's one of the core foundations and can be a core outcome for um, preparing students to be successful in their career. Um, so it's, it's, I think it's vital. Um, and I think uh, to, to encourage more students to, to, uh, to seek um, opportunities to expand and push their leadership skills prepares those students in a better way um, for their first, second, and third jobs. Okay. Why, question number two, why should aspiring student affairs practitioners go into leadership work? Mm -hmm. um, well, first of all, you're going to be dealing with a pretty uh, uh, challenging, innovative, and exciting group of uh, young people in that work. I mean, I think you know, if it's uh, – uh, for the reasons I just mentioned in terms of outcomes, but you're also going to be, I mean, you're, some, you're probably in some ways working with some of the top 20, 30% of, the, of, the, of your students in terms of the folks who kind of lean into that space. So I think that's important. Um, and I think it's also a, um, a, a really good opportunity to um, uh, uncover uh, someone's potential um, and unlock some um, some doors for them that they may not have uh, have had open for them before. Um, uh, and, I, you know, I think about, you know, think about all the students we work with and um, the ones that didn't start off, you know, coming out of being the president of SGA in their high school, um, but in that normal maturational developmental process, they're beginning to discover themselves. And so I think this could be a very powerful thing to see um, developmentally how, how students kind of come into their own space around leadership and develop their own voice and providing opportunities to do that. It's very, very um, encouraging and it's inspiring work. Um, so I think it's a great, it's a great field, it's a great piece to go into. Um, and often leadership is combined with student organization work, um, working with student, act student activities, you know, civic engagement. You, you, many, many of our leadership educators have an opportunity to teach, which is a great uh, skill set to uh, uh, take with them in their, their own portfolio. So it's a, it's a, it's a great starting role if you can do it. And even if in your res life, I think you can still think of yourself as a leadership educator um, and, and think about how you advance those skills with your, uh, with your RAs, student employees, residents on your floor, that kind of thing. Hmm. All right. Question number three. How do you view yourself as a leader in the field of student affairs? Well, I have a very, uh, you know, that answer is different today than it would have been five years ago when I was in a different role. But as the president of NASPA, um, I, I, I um, see that um, my, my role is as much to be the voice for student affairs um, as anything else. I mean, obviously I have a set of internal leadership roles that I play in terms of leading the organization itself. Um, but I really see the primary role that I play is um, being an advocate uh, for the work we do both within um, student affairs, but more importantly, uh, externally, how, I, how we represent our work um, with presidents, chief business officers, chief academic officers, those, that, with that audience I think is uh, increasingly important part of, of my role. Um, a lot of the writing I do, a lot of the um, uh, uh, speaking I do is with non-student affairs audiences and I'm trying to translate the value of what we do. I mean, this week I was, I was speaking to a group of uh, chief business officers and chief academic officers who sometimes, despite their best effort, might look at student affairs as maybe being a little more frivolous. Uh, they might see, you know, a bunch of 
folks out in the quad blowing up balloons for an activities fair. Um, and so getting them to see the, literally the breadth of what we do um, and the role that we play in a variety of really some pretty critical issues. So I think that that for me right now is the most important leadership role. So it's sort of, in some ways a little more symbolic, a little bit more sort of a, uh, 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 for me it's less about how I supervise my staff and more about how I um, uh, represent the field. And then second thing is, you know, with all the transformation and different changes in higher education, I also see part of my role as helping pivot the profession towards um, some of these challenges um, and, uh, and, and, and helping, and through NASPA, helping prepare the field to, um, um, to see those changes and, and call out best practices and, and examples where campuses are addressing some of those key challenges so that we are the best positioned um, to be successful in the, in the new iteration of college university life in the next five, ten years. All right, question number four. Uh, and I think this is a, a nice segue from, from your last point and sort of touches on what you're speaking about with the achievement gap earlier. But what areas of student affairs are in need of quality leaders? Um, boys, uh, I think, you know, I'm going to just have to re-talk re, um, about that the achievement gap issue. I think this is, as, our, as a nation, uh, this is one of our most compelling issues, uh, and not just that bifurcation I talked about, but the fact that um, our completion rates for uh, uh, Latino youth, uh, African-American black youth, uh, Native American, Alaska Native youth in our, in our colleges is, uh, is well below the white, not, not white, not Hispanic. Our low income rate is, uh, achievement rate is lower. Our first generation is lower. The intersection of those obviously is an, an important issue. We've got to get, um, think about how we're going to reallocate resources at our institutions to, uh, to, to make progress in this space. So that's one. Um, I think clearly, I think um, we, we need more, I think we are playing, but we can play more, more of a leadership role um, in helping campuses um, uh, maneuver and respond to the increasing activism we're seeing on campus around key um, issues around uh, racial um, uh, injustice, uh, systemic oppression, a broad set of uh, social justice issues. Um, uh, and I think that's increasingly important. I think um, we have been at this a long time and so have we value activism, we value students speaking out, we value uh, the, the, the ex exposure to controversial ideas. Um, so I think in some ways that we have a, a really a, a fabulous opportunity as a as a profession to lead our institutions and help lead our um, uh, lead our response to these um, these these demands that students are presenting us. Um, and so when Black Lives Matter is on our campus, on most of our campuses, um, how we respond to that? We shouldn't respond from a place of fear um, or defensiveness. We should embrace embrace that dialogue with our students. And I think again, student affairs are. Professionals are more able to do that, or more uh, have more history of doing that than than many of our other institutional leaders. Um, so this is a unique opportunity for us, I think, in that space. Okay. Question number five. I, I recently had the opportunity to to hear you present at the Region Two uh, National Mid Managers Institute, and mm -hmm. really took a lot of value from a point that you that you made about reading our critics. So for student mm -hmm. leadership practitioners in particular. Uh, who do you think those critics are, and what are some of their valid criticisms that we should be negotiating? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, here's one critic, uh, uh, Jane Wellman, in the, uh, who's now ch changed positions, but she um, uh, came out of the Delta Cost Project um, that had uh, really forwarded and advanced uh, a, a line of 
criticism about universities and around administrative bloat. Um, I think I think we're very vulnerable on the administrative bloat piece um, from a uh, from the outside. Um, so. Um, uh, and I think understanding that, and you know, and understanding that from a couple of different perspectives. One, know your data at your institution. How, what is the percentage of the institutional budget that is, is is allocated to student affairs and student services? Know that number, because you're in a conversation with faculty member or someone else who is sort of you know critiquing the fact that there's too many administrators. What you'll find is that that number generally averages between eight, nine, ten percent, um, and so uh, you can't explain the rise in tuition over the last decade by uh, the part of the budget that is 8 to 10 percent. Um, um, people will say, well, we have, we're spending more money on administrators than faculty. Well, actually, that's, that's, that's simply not true. So understand the facts about your institution. That's, that's one um, response to, for, to critics. I think the other, um, uh, you know, sense of the other place where we're seeing a lot of critics is around uh, this notion of coddling and uh, and oversupporting our students. So you know, read the, the Atlantic um, magazine's uh, uh, article, "The Coddling of the American College Students," uh, mm-hmm. um, and to, to have an understanding of a viewpoint that says that um, that you know what we're doing is essentially robbing students of their normal developmental kind of growth by providing all the support. Jeff Salingo makes that same point in, in College Unbound. And, and, and I would make an alternative point. And so, so you know, that's one of our critics is saying, well, we're, we're, there's too many counselors, too much support, uh, you, know, to, you know, all this kind of stuff. You know, Jeff Slingo sort of says, you know, by, by matching roommates on preferences that we're, you know, we're kind of um, making it too easy for students. And I would say um, that the uh, issues students are bringing to campus, for whatever the reason, are real. Um, they, you know, the issues around anxiety and depression and stress, um, uh, learning disabilities, uh, you know, all the, the all the array of things that we're dealing with, substance abuse issues, this whole array, are serious issues. And rather than looking at them as coddling our students, how about if we look at them as these are retention strategies? Um, because without the kind of support that we provide for these students, um, that many of them won't graduate. Um, so it's sort of just kind of thinking differently. But we do need to understand how people view us sometimes. And that view of us as kind of over-supporting our students is important, important to know. Um, but the last thing is, you know, uh, you know there, there, it is expensive to provide the kind of support we, you know, that we provide. Um, and there's some of our critics that are, would argue that um, a lot of this can be done uh, in an online environment, um, that we, just like teaching and learning can be done online, so can other aspects of the collegiate experience. And that we don't need, you know, the critics would say, well, we don't need students in fraternities. We don't need them living in the residence halls. We don't need them involved in student activities. It's really just about getting your classes and getting a job um, and kind of getting into that kind of transactional piece. Again, I would say um, here, uh, understand, um, un- you know, Tie, tie into and understand your data. Um, uh, there's nothing more powerful than good outcome data around the work that we're doing, particularly if we can um, make the case that the, that the uh, experiences that we're providing, the engagement opportunities we're providing through, um, through student affairs um, uh, sync up directly with, um, with either retention persistence or the acquisition of those core skills that we know are important, you know, um, critical thinking, problem solving, leadership, innovation, uh, you know, written, written and oral communication, those kinds of things. So if we can make that connection to those kinds of things, I think that's, that's valuable as, as well. Um, and, you know, and there's lots of data out there. Read the Gallup stuff. The Gallup uh, uh, Purdue index material uh, points very clearly to 
um, the kind of wellness and well-being that, we, that people find in their first two, three-year job, jobs is connected to um, their experiences on campus, and in particular, their experiences of being engaged on campus. And so there's a lifelong value to some of the things that we're doing that we, we need to understand as well. So I'd say those are some of the criticisms that we get, and I think we just need to be aware of um, um, so that we can argue intelligently about, uh, about the reality of what we're providing. Yeah, I think your I think your point about uh, I I can really only speak for my campus, but I get the sense that the Coddling the American Mind article from the Atlantic was a little bit of a thunderbolt around around the field, and um, mm -hmm. something that immediately stood out to me as I was reading that and and thinking about Jeff Longo and his perspective a little bit as well is that uh, I, I think it, I felt it very uh, very uh, viscerally as I was reading the Coddling the American Mind, which I think has, from a mental health perspective, has a lot of really good points, but kind of gets lost in its, uh, I think, privilege-based yeah. take on yeah. things like yeah. microaggressions. And you have to recognize mm -hmm. the position of privilege mm -hmm. that the authors of that particular article are coming from in that, in that conversation, um, not you know, knowing everything about their life, but knowing some of the, some of the identities that they hold. Well, the so guy who wrote is the head of, the head of is from FIRE. So um, that's, that, that says a, a little bit about their perspective. Um, so yeah, I mm -hmm. think, but you're right, it, it, it did catch on. And I, you, know, you mentioned microaggressions. I think that's you know, this, this, um, this idea, you know, there's, a, there's a very strong thread that's out there right now about um, uh, that students should have to just kind of weather anything that's thrown their way, um, regardless of how offensive, um, in a classroom environment uh, uh, or in their community, um, is um, you know just kind of antithetical to the way we think about you know the kind of environments we're trying to create. Um, and so, um, you know, uh, yes, is there some kind of you got to get over it kind of resilience that we want to build in our students? Yes. Um, um, but when, um, uh, but you, you, but we, we also want to create environments where, where a uh, uh, student of color or a student from, um, from uh, a transgender student can experience their classroom environment and their university environment without uh, just this unending series of, uh, of uh, uh, offenses um, uh, that uh, that go unchallenged. So I think it's I think it's appropriate that we're looking at this kind of stuff, and it just you know th this is you know. This is always what we face in our critics, is you can oversimplify all of this. You know, it's like the Sherry Tur Turkle stuff. So, I like her book Alone Together. I think it's I think it raises a good point that we one of the things we should be doing in college universities providing a real tangible face to face interaction opportunities for our students, and that and that uh, we we probably um, as a society sort of the allegiance to our mobile device is maybe breaking down some of the kind of skill building we've had around interpersonal stuff, but. But you know, if you don't, it's it's just too simplistic to say. Well, it's just like no one should have uh, cell phones, and nobody should be on their cell phone at all. I mean, it's just it's, so we have to kind of look at this in the complexity in which it's it's deserved. Um, and so it's not just not uh, it's not just just we, these articles sometimes to be tend to you know operate at such a high uninformed level that they um, they don't really understand, they don't kind of appreciate the complexity of what it's like to be in a college environment and the kinds of um, challenges that students face. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, in the in the developmental stage that they're going through psychologically exactly. during, exactly. during that exactly. step right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. yep, yep, exactly, yep. Yeah. yeah, the other thing that I thought from your original response, the, the point about you know, folks who are arguing for uh, more online experiences, uh, I would encourage all of those folks to take an online class because I'm, yeah. you know, I'm, not, I'm yeah. not really here to, 
to bash an industry as a whole. Um, but you know, I think anyone who's taken an online course has a sense that classroom learning still has a lot of merit. Uh, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. So absolutely, uh, yeah. Well, I think you know. I think we're, I mean, I, I, we're kind of, we're very quickly moving to a you know what will, for most students will be a, a, a some sort of hybrid experience where there'll be you know a combination of different learning opportunities depending on the course and depending on you know lots of other different factors. But uh, I say it's it's I know you can do it. I mean, you can take 120 credits uh, uh, online, and and people do that very successfully. Um, uh, um, but, there, but I think we um, we have something very special in American higher education um, uh, that's not just the residential experience, but that 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 rich milieu of interaction you get. I mean, you know, it happens in a community college, happens at a commuter campus, happens at a residential campus, um, and I think that that's part of what has been made American higher education so great. Um, so before we just throw it all out and say we can do it cheaper and easier online, I think you're right. I think we have to examine what we're losing and and the richness that we want to kind of make sure we maintain. I think that some of the solutions for online learning and non-traditional learning and MOOCs and that kind of thing are really good options, in particular for non-traditional or um, mm-hmm. adult learners who may not have the same kinds of um, uh, flexibility that, uh, that uh, mm-hmm. the coming-of-age generation has. Um, but I really do like what Paul LeBlanc says, um, you know, and he's an advocate for online education, obviously, um, um, when he um, kind of argues that we we always will have you know a need for the coming of age generation to be educated in a fairly traditional way. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, in 2020, we'll still have you know 14 million students in uh, who are between you know 18 and 22 years old in this in the system. This is always will be the largest sector of higher education. Um, and and mm-hmm. so it's, you know it's important to kind of acknowledge what you know just developmentally. You know, I think it's one of the things student affairs folks. Uh, you know, such part of our DNA is that is is because we do understand that those developmental issues, um, uh, that the importance of um, having a supportive environment uh, during those challenging times as a, a young adolescent, I think it's really important. Um, so, uh, I, can, I, I I tend to be bullish, uh, pretty bullish on this. I don't see that we're going to lose American higher education in the way that we historically have seen it. It will change and adapt, obviously, but. I, I, I can't imagine that we'll end up in a society 20 years from now where you graduate from high school and you go down in the basement and you get 120 credits of MOOCs. I just don't see it. Um, mm. And I also don't see that we're just we're going to move to just simply a privileged higher education system where only those can afford it will go. I think that you know the the fact that the free free college tuition proposal. Is is even in the political dialogue? Mm-hmm. Is um, it, it suggests that the, that that there's going to be some solutions for um, low income and low middle class families that uh, that keep college affordable because it's such an important gateway to um, success in our in our country. So um, again, I think that that's I think that we'll see something there, and and probably what the impact of all this is going to be, you know, which is already happening, is that. This is a and this is a challenge for student affairs in general. Is that we, you know we are going to have to get by with less resources. Um, I mean that's just that's that's reality. There's not going to be a lot of new money coming into higher ed, even if tuition is uh, supported. Um, there's still not operational money at the state level, um, and we and we can't raise tuition very much any longer. So there's still going to be we're going to be fiscally constrained for uh, as far out as I can see. Hmm. All right. Question number six, our final one. For the remainder of 2016, for the next you know, four months, what is the biggest obstacle, what is not the biggest obstacle, biggest issue facing student affairs? Well, you've got to go back to the uh, race and equity issue. I think um, uh, 
the uh, Clinton-Trump campaign in the next four months, uh, in the next three months, is is uh, is coming to uh, coming to our campus. And you know, I just look back at the at the you know, small canary in the coal mine example at Emory last fall when uh, students mm-hmm. were, you know, talking Trump on the on this sidewalk as they are, as they are permitted to do um, and how some students uh, experience that as a microaggression. That's just one example. Um, this is, you know, the sort of um, the anger, the kind of bifurcation of, of this that we're seeing in terms of the political dialogue, I think is, is going to come to our campus. Um, we have conservative students on campus. We have Trump supporters on campus. We have Hillary supporters. We're going to, I think, I think this is going to be a very contentious, debate and I think we'll see a lot of uh, this spilling out into our, in our own campus. Um, I think the, uh, the shootings, uh, law enforcement shootings uh, in Baton Rouge uh, and in, um, in St. Paul uh, occurred in the summertime, but I think students will come back motivated to continue to challenge our institutions and uh, our, our local areas in terms of uh, 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 issues around Black Lives Matter. I think that's going to be uh, emerge again. Um, so all how we deal with this and this emerging climate of how we deal with activism is 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 I think you know number one. Um, that's I think that's going to continue. Um, I think the other second thing is I think we're uh, this, this most recent second court uh, second circuit court opinion out of uh, um, uh, Colombia on sexual assault, uh, finding that the uh, Columbia campus essentially uh, in their Title IX efforts have created a discriminatory environment for the male students who are accused of sexual assault is huge. And um, uh, I think we're going to continue to see sort of the evolution of and the, 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 um, the, the challenges around how we protect victims uh, and yet create fair and equitable processes for both parties. Um, this, is, this is not over. Um, the, uh, the, the debate and the challenge around sexual assault and sexual violence is going to continue. And, and, we'll, get, and we'll also get politicized on both sides. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. post, you know, post-election, uh, we expect that Claire McCaskill's uh, CASA bill will, will come up at some point in the next uh, year or so. Um, uh, that's going to kind of bring this back into the federal um, spotlight again. Um, so I would say that that, remain, that continues to be and, and something we – are challenged with, and I would say the other part of that is that um, you know the the work, the hard work, the easy work in some ways has been cleaning up our policies, our judicial processes, making sure we have appropriate Title IX staff, victims advocates. I think the hard work now is how do we change the culture? How do we change the culture about um, around sexual violence on campus and and um, and 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 look for preventive prevention and, and educational um, efforts that actually. Uh, make a difference in the, um, the experience uh, and, the, and the numbers of students who are experiencing sexual violence on campus. That's hard work. So I think those are two that jump out at me that I think we're going to be uh, a top of mind for many folks. Hmm. All right. Well, thanks everyone for joining us for the NASA Leadership Podcast presented by the NASA Student Leadership Program Knowledge Community. And thanks so much to Dr. Kevin Kruger for joining us. You can connect with Kevin on Twitter at NASPAPREZ. That's Prez with an S. And Kevin, it was such an honor having you join me today. And thanks so much for the generosity of your time and insight. Oh, so, thanks, Miles. It was a great conversation. I appreciate being asked. You have a great day. Take care. Okay. All right. Uh, so you can you can get more information about the knowledge community on our various social media outlets at uh, facebook.com backslash SA lead, on Twitter at NASPA SLPKC, and on Instagram at NASPA underscore SLPKC. 
And you can also connect with me on Twitter at M-Y-L-E-S underscore Surrett. That's S-U-R-R-E-T-T. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we'd love to hear about your program. So please shoot an email to NASPA Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much, Kevin. Thanks.